Give me a bite. Thank you. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is Orson Welles. I'm speaking for the Mercury Theater, and what follows is supposed to advertise our first motion picture. Citizen Kane is the title, and we hope it can correctly be called a coming attraction. It's certainly coming, coming to this theater, and I think our Mercury actors make it an attraction. I'd like you to meet them. Speaking of attractions, well, the chorus girls are certainly an attraction, but frankly, ladies and gentlemen, we're just showing you the chorus girls for purposes of ballyhoo. Yes. The first word in sleds. Rosebud frozen peas. <laughs> All right, maybe <laughs> Filled not. with round green penis. <laughs> yes. I'm glad you know that reference. <laughs> yes, I was just watching that again today. Um, the critic. I was kind of thinking, They're even more delicious raw. No, no, no. He, <laughs> he talks about... Uh, no, there are two different uh, references. One is... Rosebud... Yes, rosebud frozen peas, full of country goodness and green penis. Wait, that's terrible. I quit. Just a handful for the road. Oh, what luck. There's a French fry stuck in my beard. Oh, yeah. On one hand, that's absurd, but also I wouldn't put it past the real Orson Welles. That he had just... His ego had become so large, and he just oh. didn't give a damn so much <laughs> that he would eat a beer uh, French fry. Well, yeah. And then, no, no, then the other reference you're thinking of is, there's no fish stick like Mrs. Pell's. Yes. They're even better raw. <laughs> um, yes, that was one Who of the first... Who am I first... kidding? I need the money. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's sad that... Many people only remember Orson Welles because of those outtakes. We know a remote farm in Lincolnshire where Mrs. Buckley lives. Every July, peas grow there. We aren't even in the fields, you see. We're talking about them growing and she's picked them. <coughs> what? I don't understand you then. When must, what must be over for a July? Um, when we get out of the field. When I was out. We were on to a can of peas, a big dish of peas, when I said in July. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, always. I'm always past that. Yes. Well, that's about where I say in July. Why? That doesn't make any sense. Sorry. There's no known way of saying an English sentence in which you begin a sentence with in and emphasize it. Get me a jury and show me how you can say in July and I'll go down on you. That's just idiotic. Um, which are pretty funny. I mean, I rewatched the the one he did for the wine. I think is probably the best one because he's just sitting there and like at first he like they call action. He's just kind of sitting there dozed off. And well, he just says, "Does she do anything?" And you don't know what he's saying. And then. At one point, they call action, and he just kind of snaps up as if he's been asleep, and goes like, ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, And of oh, course... Have you, there was, back in the 80s, there was a, a, a board game called Dark Tower that Orson Welles did the commercial for. <laughs> and, I've never seen that. Last night, I journeyed backwards in time to the medieval world of Dark Tower. In this amazing game, I had to find three keys, lay siege to the tower, and defeat the enemy within. Each move was a challenge. The computer kept track, giving me secret information, pictures, sounds, surprises. Then, ahead of my opponent, I made my move. The battle was joined, and I was victorious. Dark Tower, from MB Electronics. And they played that game on beer and board games? And, oh. so, and so he said, you may uh, remember the famous commercial with Orson Welles. And we set up Dark Tower and played it all day along. And it was the best day I ever had. And one of the guys said, you and Orson Welles did all that? He's like, yeah. And then he tucked me into bed afterwards. <laughs> and of course, the one can't forget um, 
the uh, that Pinky and the Brain also yeah. did their parody. Of it. I didn't understand that episode because it was just. I had no idea what they were talking about. And no, like, they weren't. You know, why, as a kid, why is it what th- references are they yeah, doing? Why Why are they just in a recording studio? What are they talking about? Why aren't they trying to take over the world? Yes. <laughs> so are we going to talk about things with Orson Welles? I believe we may, sir. All right. Well, I had talked. I would like to basically talk about Orson Welles, though, seriously, because... Um, Two other movies that I have watched recently for the first time um, uh, were Chimes at Midnight and Macbeth. And these were the last two uh, directed by Orson Welles movies that I hadn't seen yet. Uh, Chimes at Midnight especially was something that was on my to-see list uh, going back years. Because um, the movie, this is one of those unique cases, you know, in this day and age in 2015, where you can't get it on VHS, you can't get it on DVD. You can get it, I believe, from Europe. I think they released the movie in Spain, or maybe Germany. Hmm. Um, I forget where exactly. So you can get, like, an export. And I think that when I was in college, I sought out, like, a bootleg and it was just so bad quality that I started to watch and I couldn't finish it. Um, but finally, uh, because this is the centennial of Orson Welles, uh, because he was born in 1915, oh. uh, this movie theater in New York City, the film form, was doing a retrospective of his career uh, for the past month. And so they finally, and they showed one showing, or actually no, maybe two showings of Chimes at Midnight. Like, you know, other movies they had, like, they show Citizen Kane for a week. Right. Or they show Touch of Evil, you know, multiple showings across a day or two. Chimes at Midnight they show once. And what I found out later was that apparently his youngest daughter is, uh, frankly, kind of a, uh, a bitch. Really? Uh, she has what? blocked the release of this movie, in part. And, you know, she's also kind of blocked the release of other movies here and there. Um, There were rights issues. I don't know why. Money, reasons. I don't know if she's the only reason. But for some reason, this movie, Chimes at Midnight, where, I mean, I'll talk about this in a moment, but Orson Welles gives, like, maybe his, arguably his best performance. And no one's seen it. Because, again, it's not on video, it's not on DVD. I don't even know if they show it on TCM that much. And it's a movie where it's like, um, I mean, let me get into though Orson Welles himself. I mean, this was some, this is somebody who, um, you know, when I talk about, you get in the tunnel vision about somebody, I can, I can go on YouTube and just watch a lot of Orson Welles videos for hours. Right. I just find him to be kind of a fascinating person to listen to, you know, because he has that voice he has kind of a commanding presence about him. Well, that well, that's mainly how he got his start in radio. Yeah, yeah he mean, got his start well in radio and theater. You know, he was basically he even started out really at an early age as like a Shakespeare guy. Like he was kind of like one of these prodigies who wrote a book about Shakespeare when he was like eighteen hmm. or something. It was called Everybody Shakespeare, and it was kind of like a history of Shakespeare plays and productions. And that was kind of like really the start of what would become a kind of fascination with his career. Uh, because in the theater, he, uh, one, two of his most memorable works were a production of Macbeth that was done as if it was voodoo. Um, so there was that. And then you had Julius Caesar, which was performed by actors as if they were in suits, like it was uh, a modern-day Julius Caesar production. Yeah. Um, so you had these really daring productions from Orson Welles with his Mercury Theater group, and then, of course, you know, War of the Worlds, which kind of blew him up everywhere. War, of the, Yeah, War of the Worlds really got him national attention. Mm-hmm. It, you, pro- you might not have had a... A career in cinema, if it hadn't been for War of the Worlds. Well, yeah, it was after War of the Worlds that he uh, got his contract with RKO, and originally his first project that he was going to do as a director was uh, Hearts of Darkness, 
that was his first uh, film that he had proposed to do, and he had actually done a lot of prep work for it. Um, he had planned to do it in a really radical way, I think. Um, he was going to do it from, like, I think, almost like a first-person perspective. Not like a found not like a found footage film, but as if it was from uh, yeah, a character's eyes. Yeah, the camera is not a camera. It's, it's the character. It was before late... Lady in the Lake. I was about to say Lady in the Water. God damn. Ah! <laughs> what happens when a narf gets scratched, Jack? Narf! <laughs> I don't know. But the point is, um, uh, Orson Welles, he, I, I don't know why, but the project was dropped. Uh, I guess maybe they couldn't come up with the money or just kind of lost control of him. Um, so then he set his mind on William Randolph Hearst. And he had um, this friend of his, this guy Herman J. Mankiewicz, who had kind of hung out at, like, the Hearst camp. And they both kind of looked at Hearst as kind of like, man, this guy has this huge empire, and he's kind of a big asshole. He's kind of lorded <laughs> over journalism for years and years, and just been kind of like a horrible person to a lot of people. I mean, but he's also a fascinating person. He kind of changed the game of journalism, as we know it. Yeah. Um... Yeah, but he also was very fantastical and full of tabloid stuff. Um, so Orson Welles presents uh, that he wants to do a movie inspired by William Randolph Hearst uh, called Citizen Kane. And, uh, you know, he makes this movie. He, he has Final Cut. He has basically the kind of dream contract, um, which, uh, you know, I read a book about Welles last year where he was kind of despised by Hollywood basically from the start because he's, you know, here's this guy who, you know, he doesn't come up through the industry like a lot of these people did through the 30s. He's a guy from New York. He has, like, this beard, you know, and people are like, Wait, what's with doing with that beard? You know, fuck that beard. Uh, <laughs> I mean, but in his early film roles, he didn't have a beard. No, no, no. It was just when he first came to Hollywood. He had, like, kind of like a pretentious actor beard. Oh. I forget why. Um... But um, but they just kind of resented him right away, and you know he had like this dream contract where he had Final Cut, and uh, you know basically could make any movie he wanted, and so he decided, you know, I'm gonna make this movie and take on basically one of the biggest figures in the country, you know, the world, and of course, uh, even though he made what a lot of people consider to be the, you know the greatest film of all time. A lot of people didn't even see it when it first came out because Hearst was that big a figure that he blocked a lot of theaters from showing the movie. Hmm. Um, you know, he you know they almost tried to bury the film, uh, but Wells was able to try to convince the studio, no, 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 don't do it. And so finally, you know, there was kind of a tense tug of war over a movie which, you know, it's not that it's not that bad against Hearst. It kind of shows him just as he was. He was, you know, a rich mogul who, you know, had a lot of problems. Yeah. Which, um, you know, in the movie well, is... But, uh, but, I mean, in Citizen Kane, uh, Charles Foster Kane, I mean, he is a jerk. But, uh, you can sympathize with him. I mean, he has this empire. He has ambitions. He's built up. He's built it up, you know, from the ground. I, what he does is admirable. He just, uh, and towards the end of his life, he ends up alone. Yeah. And that that's the really sad thing about him, where you can point to him and say, and you can feel bad about him, because this man had everything, and he was empty inside. Yeah, he was a truly tragic figure. Yeah. Um, And so from here, you know, Orson Welles puts out Citizen Kane. The people who see it, you know, go gaga for it, like... Even from when it first came out, it had a reputation as, wow, this movie is absolutely amazing. It's just that not that many people saw it. Some people maybe even thought it was a little avant-garde when it first came out, because there are a lot of like crazy camera tricks in the movie, mm. you know. Um, so Wells does that, and his follow-up is The Magnificent Ambersons. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard or seen this movie. I've heard of it, and I've heard about... The Legend of Magnus and Ambersons. He adapts this book, which is kind of like this somber take on, you know, the American dream and how America kind of changed from 
one one era into another. It became more into the industrial age, right? Um, and so uh, he does this movie, um, and it's now a movie that a lot of critics almost there are some circles who consider this even better than Citizen Kane. They think it's like his best movie. Uh, Joseph Cotton's really great in the movie. Uh, also, this actress Agnes Moorhead is really awesome. She was also in Citizen Kane. Um, well, what happened was, well, there was a combination of things. Uh, it was like right after World War II broke out. You know, Pearl Harbor was hit in the end of '41. So what, Orson Welles is kind of asked by one of the film studios, uh, I forget if it was RKO or another one, to go down to South America to do like this, like Goodwill movie or something. I forget what it was, but while he was away, the studio held like a previous screening. It didn't go well, and so they went and cut off like a half hour of the movie and released, you know, a butchered cut of it. And they actually, I think, shot a new ending without him there. And, um, yeah, so the studio basically screwed him over and fired him, and that was it. Uh, because it's like, hey, you know, World War II broke out. What are you doing making this, like, you know, ser- you know, sad, serious movie. People don't want to see sad stuff. They want to be uplifted again. You know, you can't make art. You know, we're, we hired you to make art. What are you doing making art? Uh, so that was the studio's thinking in that case. Um, the reason so- I know, so I, I, I'm aware of the Magnificent Ambersons is because of Mystery Science Theater. Uh, how so? They were watching this movie called Invasion of the Neptune Men. And it was... It was a Japanese movie, super low production values, tons of stock footage. The stock footage is so dated. This film was made in the 1950s, and it has this infamous shot of a building with a giant picture of Hitler on it, which must have been from the World War II era, or I don't know, but for some (laughs) reason, it just pops up and the building explodes, and they were like, what, what? Where did that come from? <laughs> they blew up the Hitler building. <laughs> and it was like one of those things like, yeah. am I dreaming? Did I fall asleep for a second? Was that real? Yeah. And eventually the movie was so terrible because it like disintegrates into like a montage of stock footage. Okay. That <laughs> Tom Servo suddenly just starts saying, you know what? I'm not watching this movie right now. I'm watching the Magnificent Ambersons. Yes, it's the Magnificent Ambersons. Yep, this is Amberson Manor. Does it have hot running water? Up stairs and down. And, and he just breaks down into tears. <laughs> I have to see this movie, man. Oh, man. Wow. It is truly putrid. But that is the extent of my knowledge of the Magnificent Ambersons. Okay. Yes. Yes. Um, well, it's a pretty lovely film, if you ever get a chance to check it out. Right. Um, even with the what, ending... What film did, did Orson Welles make down in South America? Well, it's funny because was he... It, was it Touch of Evil? <laughs> no, 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 that comes later. I know. And what, what's interesting is that I he don't... was sent to make some kind of movie, I guess, to show... I don't know what, I think, like... The, how good the people were down there. I forget what the purpose was to do with World War Two. It was some kind of goodwill ambassador thing. Um, but ultimately what happened with it was he did shoot kind of like a short film, and it was thought lost for a while. And then in the 90s, it was rediscovered, and they put out this film called It's All True. And it's this documentary that kind of looks at Wells making his time down in South America, and then... Um, uh, then and then they show what he did with this movie, uh, It's All True. And it's a fascinating kind of look at, um, you know, with all these non-actors, showing them just going about doing, like, their ritual of a day, like working in the ocean as fishermen, coming back to their hut. I forget entirely it's what. But it's like Land Without Bread. <laughs> you laugh, but it is a little bit like Land Without Bread. Um, not, not the as... donkeys walk up the precipitous slope. Yes. Many fall and die <laughs> on the rocks below. It's These not people surrealist. are stupid. The end. Yeah. <laughs> and there are lots of flies in classrooms. Um, <laughs> yeah, so Orson Welles does that. And, um, I mean, he comes back and Orson Welles, he never really was without acting, you know, for his career. He was always acting, 
you know, the parts ranged in quality. I mean, in, he did a lot of good acting for other people, though. Like, obviously, uh, the, the Third, Third Man, Man comes to mind. That's yeah. kind of the That's movie, a movie that, that people they remembers. see. Yeah, they see, and they're, they're surprised that Orson Welles didn't direct it. Yeah, because, because he's he has such a, a very expressionistic style. He, he, but he has such a big part in that film. I mean, you can't imagine the third man without Orson Welles. No, and what's, and what's great is that he doesn't even show up until an hour into the film. Yeah, and yet he it's like reverse Psycho. Yeah, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I it took me a second to think about that. Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> For those five of you people who haven't seen Psycho, um, or The Third Man, and you should be ashamed. Um, but he also did an adaptation of Jane Eyre that was well regarded. Um, he made a movie in the 50s that I'm going to try to check out soon called Compulsion, uh, where he played like a lawyer. Um, oh, he was, let's, in, he was in Moby Dick. Let's not forget he had a part in... Um, oh, no, are you going to say it? In The Trial. Oh, okay. I, whew. Well, that's also a movie he directed. Um, and what's interesting about that movie, I was uh, recently checking out a documentary called Filming the Trial, where he's doing like this long Q&A session about that movie. Um, and what's interesting is that he, he... It wasn't like he was going out of his way trying to make a movie about the trial. What happened was uh, there was this family called the uh, Selkins, and um, they were these... They're this, like wealthy group uh, this family uh they ended up making the first superman movies oh. in the 70s they were the people behind that they got the rights of superman and they that was their big ultimate claim to fame uh but in the 60s they were still i guess trying to make other movies and what happened was they met up with orson welles and they wanted to make some other movie with him and it didn't quite work out so but yeah, it's funny i mentioned it because you have a copy of the trial right behind your head I do. I have like a bookshelf, <laughs> and I have a copy of Kafka's The Trial. Yeah, he's right behind me, staring at me, judging me. <laughs> um, but the point is, is that um, that what happened was, so this movie thing didn't work out that they wanted to do. But then the Salkins give Orson Welles this list of eighty projects that they have like the rights to, and they told Orson Welles, okay, pick a title from this list, and you can make this movie. And out and on this list, Orson Welles sees the trial, and he suddenly thinks, "Huh, oh, I should do that," you know. And so that's how the movie came about. Huh. You know, it's a kind of unique situation where, uh, um, I mean, maybe that's how it works in Hollywood, and we secretly don't know it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> maybe they give, maybe they have a list of movies that they give to, like, uh, directors of possible Marvel movies, <laughs> and that's how they decide their titles. All right, let's see what we got here. Yeah. Uh, She-Hulk, uh, Jonah Hex. Uh, oh, Jonah Hex is DC. Uh, I'm tired. <laughs> um, but the trial is a. That's a really. That's a. You've seen that movie, right? Yeah, that's kind of a. Uh, that's a it, trip. It's. It's got this haunting. It's like a horror movie. That's it's not really. I. It is nightmarish, but not in that sort of nightmare where, you know, a guy with a knife is stalking you through a, an empty house. It's, it's kind of like it's kind of like the nightmare where someone tells you, "Okay, go take this letter to Steve who lives up the road." And as you walk up the road, you realize that the road is curving to the left without you knowing. Yes. And then houses disappear and you end up in a city that is populated by gargoyles. You know, uh, thing, it's, uh, it's, uh, this, oh man, it's very eerie it in is. that it's a man being persecuted almost with, he doesn't know. Yeah. It, he he's doesn't never really told what he's done wrong. And it's not as if people are like pounding on his door, urging him to confess or anything. It's just that he has this weight of accusation hung over him. Uh, and he cannot stand just waiting around for whatever it is to yeah. happen. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't even know what it is that'll happen. He exactly. He's trying to get tried or at least find out what his crime is. And uh, nobody will give him a straight answer. Not a bit. Not even Orson Welles. <laughs> yeah, who plays, who, who, the, who plays uh, a lawyer. 
Yeah, the uh, accuser, I think, is it? It's it's, it's he's someone. Some, he's either some sort of prosecutor, or he's a lawyer, or someone who who works in the legal system, and he just uh, makes slaves of people, basically, yes. who who are trying to get his help. But uh, he's just giving them. He's just giving everybody the runaround, just like Anthony Perkins in the trial is getting the runaround from everybody. Yeah, I mean that. Uh, it's it's really it's done like yeah as a, like a kind of paranoid nightmare. And you know the thing about certain things when if you're paranoid, it doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Before the law, there stands a god. A man comes from the country begging admittance to the law. But the god cannot admit him. Can he hope to enter at a later time? That is possible, says the god. The man tries to peer through the entrance. He had been taught that the law should be accessible to every man. Do not attempt to enter without my permission, says the god. I am very powerful, yet I am the least of all the gods. From hall to hall, door after door, each god is more powerful than the last. By the god's permission, the man sits down by the side of the door, and there he waits. For years, he waits. Everything he has, he gives away in the hope of bribing the god, who never fails to say to him, I take what you give me, only so that you will not feel that you have left something undone. Keeping his watch during the long years, the man has learned to know even the fleas and the guard's fur color. And growing childish in old age, he begs the very fleas to persuade the guard to change his mind and allow him to enter. Uh, so that's kind of part of the point of the movie. Anthony Perkins is really terrific in the movie. Um, the sets and just the look of it, it's like, they took Kafka's story and really got to the psychological heart of it. Heart of it. Because there's no there's not there's no special effect, there's no scary monster or anything. And that's not what Kafka is about, but they don't play it up. No, it, it's all just about a man and Well, Orson Welles his... said that he basically shot it as if it was a dream. Or like his dream. And he said like the way that you that he dreams, you know, it might not be the way I dream, but the way that people move from like rooms to rooms, it might not make total logical sense, but it works in like a dreamlike way. Yeah, um, uh, it's worth noting that another movie was inspired by the trial. Did you ever see Kafka? I still need to see it. That was that's with Jeremy Irons. And yeah, it takes it's it's not a great plot, but it's a lot, uh, just a lot of fun to watch, and it takes a lot of visual cues from the trial. I mean, well, I'm it, sure it does. It's the only Soderbergh I haven't seen yet. Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a bit of fun. It's worth seeing just as <clears> just <throat> to see it. Yeah, but uh, but back to Wells as director. Um, the other he also he made an interesting mix. Like the rest of his career, um, Orson Welles said in an interview that he was he was once out to eat and a waiter went up to him and was like, "Did you ever make any other movies after Citizen Kane?" Shut up and bring me more bread. <laughs> That's probably what he said, you puny ant. Um, <laughs> but uh, but he his career kind of went between making, you know, these da really daring film noirs and these Shakespeare adaptations. Hmm. Like in the forties, in the late forties, he makes this movie, The Stranger, where he plays a uh, this Nazi who's hiding out in a small Connecticut town. And, uh, you know, he's slowly... Don't tell anyone I'm here. Yes. <laughs> I'm... I'll hit her. <laughs> yes. And slowly but surely, he's found out by Edward G. Robinson. Um, and there's a really terrific set piece involving a clock tower. No relation to Back to the Future. Um, but it's the other great clock tower sequence outside of Back to the Future. Um, I I'll just keep saying Back to the Future for the rest of the podcast. Uh, <laughs> After that, he does this lady from Shanghai, which is um, uh, kind of notorious in some ways because he made the movie at the time with his uh, then wife uh, and then soon to be ex-wife Rita Hayworth, and um, audiences were kind of aghast because before that Rita Hayworth was kind of 
known for, you know, she was a sexy bombshell, but she was a sexy bombshell with long red hair. I think Orson Welles was kind of, frankly, um, fucking with her and had her cut her hair off and dye it platinum blonde for this movie. <laughs> and it's really interesting to watch it. It's a crazy little movie. Um, it has one of the greatest courtroom scenes I've ever seen, uh, where that is kind of like a comic nightmare unto itself. Hmm. Um, Orson Welles' performance doesn't fully work. Um, he puts on an Irish accent that sounds a little goofy. <laughs> uh, you know, he has this voice that sounds like this, and I'm going to talk like this for the rest of the film. Um, but uh, but it's a fascinating watch, and that's also another thing where people talk about that movie today and watch it just because of the uh, room full of mirrors sequence, um, which you should check out. Um, then he makes Macbeth, and that that that's the movie that I just watched literally last night, and that is one dark movie, man. That kind of precedes is uh, it the darker trial. than Roman Polanski's Macbeth? Um, what I would say is that. Polanski's version is marked by how violent it is. That's like a movie inspired by somebody who uh, just lost his wife to Charles Manson. Okay. Um, the Macbeth movie, I feel like, is more of... Uh, it's more like a gothic, super dark horror movie where like it takes place in the 11th or 12th century Scotland. And so you have... Uh, a Macbeth, you know, and also in Scottish language, and a lot of it takes place in, like, the hills and caves and stuff, and it almost has, like, a barbaric quality to it, even though it technically takes place in medieval times. Yeah. Everything is super darkly lit, um, and Wells plays Macbeth as this super tortured figure and really pulls it off well. It's one of his best performances, um, I didn't really buy the actress who played Lady Macbeth in the movie. She wasn't that well cast. Roddy McDowell's in the movie. Oh, cool. That's kind of cool. Who does, he, who does Roddy McDowell play? Uh, Another great Scottish actor. Yes. He plays one of the side characters. I think he plays the... The son... He, I, not one maybe of, Macduff's, Macduff's son... In it, or or one of the king's sons? Yeah, something like that. He plays one. You know, he was young then. You know, it was the forties. Um, so that movie is really characterized by just how twisted a lot of the sets look and how dark it is. You know, don't watch that movie if you're looking for a good time. And it's kind <laughs> of funny how you know I had that double. I had a double feature of the Thin Man and Macbeth. Yeah. And by putting those two together, by the end of the night, I was like. I'm feeling okay. <laughs> it kind of balances If out. I watched one or the other, it'd be like, I'm feeling super high. Or if I watch Macbeth, I'm like, oh my god, what the hell did I just watch? Um, Life is meaningless. Yes. Um, and the other two Shakespeare movies he makes uh, are Othello, which uh, is, all, is much better, and it's characterized by a style that you could call... Um, I would say that when you're watching Othello, uh, it's like, it's not just that the character Othello is going kind of crazy with jealousy. It's like he's surrounded in a crazy world and shots are very uh, jagged and um, diagonal at times. And, uh, you know, it might not hold up completely the fact that, you know, Orson Welles plays Othello. You know, whenever you have a white actor playing a black character, yeah, that might always that's always a little weird. Today, nowadays, it's especially sketchy. It's still better than the Lawrence Olivier Othello. <laughs> oh God, did Matt ever show you that? No. There, if you ever go on YouTube and check out Lawrence Olivier's Othello, he goes all out, like he goes full blackface <laughs> in 1965 uh, as Othello, no. and it is awful, awkward. Very awkward, very turgid. Um, that's not in the case of Orson Welles' Othello. And the thing that's interesting with Othello is that um, 
it can be kind of cited as maybe the first uh, or one of the first real independent American films. Because what happened was Orson Welles had a deal to make the movie. The money ran out. And so he goes and acts in The Third Man. And he acts in another movie. And he puts the money from that into Othello. And over three years, he makes this movie. It took him three years to basically make Othello. Huh. And so that ends up being a tenor of a lot of the movies he makes from then on. It's kind of like movies made on the run. It's like, we can make this little bit here, we can make a little bit here. Um, it's interesting then that, you know, Othello, you know, like Orson Welles pops up in a bit in Ed Wood. Because yeah. he was a fellow independent filmmaker. You think about it. It's just that there were different kinds of filmmakers. And one was good and one was bad. That's true. One makes Plan 9 and the other one's making Touch of Evil. Which, uh, I should bring up Touch of Evil because that's, like, a movie that really holds up. The thing I always remember about Touch of Evil... The opening shot? No. Is Orson Welles, whenever he's in a shot, I always felt very uncomfortable. In what way? <laughs> because he was always stepping on each everybody else's lines. Uh, hmm. And I'm not saying this is a critique. This is it might be just a, he, just he's, a conscious decision. He's like he's a big character. You get a sense that this character in real life would be an unpleasant person to hang around. I mean, he doesn't. Uh, yeah, he's, he, a, he's, he's kind a corrupt of, sheriff. He's kind of a bigot. He's he's corrupt. Uh, but every every time uh, every time he talks, it's usually. Uh, he's stepping on the tail of somebody else's lines. So, so he's like, he's crowding everybody out with his bulk and with his words. And I'm just like, and for, after a while I was getting frustrated, like, wait for him to finish a sentence! Give me some room! Yes, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that's a fabulous example of a film noir. A movie that's kind of full of seedy characters and the underbelly of... A world, you know, it's set like on the border in like a Mexican town, and uh, you know, again, Orson Welles plays this super corrupt guy. And what I found fascinating too is that we often have this picture of Orson Welles always being like this super huge fat guy. And I read that both um, for his role in Touch of Evil and then Chimes at Midnight, which I'll get to in a second, he actually was a lot slimmer than we think, and actually had on a lot of prosthetics and makeup. That mm. made him look bulky. It's kind of... I just find it interesting. And then... But then later in his life... He kind of took on that shape. Yeah. He just couldn't stop eating. You know... I mean, as we learned in uh, Jodorowsky's Dune... It was like... You know... You, you, you act in my movie... And I bring the chef. You eat all the food you want. Yes. And he's like... Okay, I'll do it. <laughs> um... If it would have happened, that's a debatable, yes. but still, yes. good story. Now, I have to bring up Chimes at Midnight, because, again, I just saw this movie the other night. So what's this movie about? And what, this is a kind of an interesting movie, because what he basically did was um, he took two parts of Henry IV. There was Henry IV Part One, Henry IV Part Two. He combined them together, and he also took a little bit of Henry V. And told the story of uh, of of Henry the Fourth, and also the like Henry the Fifth as a prince, or, or he was known as Prince Hal, from the point of view, for the most part, of this character Falstaff, uh, yes. or Sir John Falstaff. And Orson Welles plays Falstaff. He's a super big guy. He almost looks like a human Totoro. Yes, <laughs> he's like a troll-shaped man. And um, the movie kind of charts how he kind of has some influence over this young king. And John Gilgood plays uh, the old Henry IV. And um, it's a fascinating look at sort of kings and power and the machinations of that. A little bit like the HBO show Game of Thrones. But, you know, maybe not... You know, you have to... With Shakespeare, it can be sometimes hard to get into the dialogue sometimes. But here is really good. Um, the thing that stands out... Orson Welles' performance is electrifying. He's funny and sharp. And then there's a huge battle sequence in the middle of the movie. It's ten minutes long, and it's one of the best battle sequences ever. Uh. It's it's 
mind-blowing. It moves at a pace that it makes, like, a Lord of the Rings battle look pale in comparison. It moves like they did this, like this. Um, and so Orson Welles makes this movie, and, you know, it's still not available in the U.S., unfortunately. It has so many magnificent moments in it, and he really steals the show, for sure. As he should. You know, it's his movie, it's his performance. Yeah. Um, and from then on, though, Orson Welles' career gets a little spotty. He makes that movie in 1965. He's alive for 20 more years, but he makes these movies which, you know, he doesn't finish all of them. He keeps running out of money. He keeps trying to act in stuff. He does wine commercials that mess up. He does uh, uh, one finished documentary called F for Fake. Which, which I've is, seen. Which is which pretty is a amazing. Lot of fun. That's a lot of fun. Which is all about fakery, and it's about like an art forger who, uh, you know, is kind of faking art for years. But it's also about him as a as a magician, and it's kind of like this fascinating hybrid documentary that looks at art and creation and what forgery is and what being a magician is. Yeah. Um. And uh, the one last thing that I want to say though with Orson Welles as a director is that he has a movie that. Maybe coming out this year. Good. That has never been released. It was finished in the mid early 70s, this movie called The Other Side of the Wind. Um, what happened was he shot this movie... That sounds like a Miyazaki film. Yeah. <laughs> the, the making of The Wind Rises, The yes. Other Side of the Wind. Or the sequel to The Wind Rises. Um, it's this kind of celebrity satire about like this young would-be filmmaker, hang out with this old filmmaker. Um, that's as far as I know about it. I don't know all the details. Um, but uh, the movie stars John Huston, which is another plus, and it's kind of done in apparently like a really kaleidoscopic way. It was almost like his attempt at doing kind of like a psychedelic type of movie. Um, what happened was something with the rights. Uh, I think the movie was co-financed by... The brother, like the brother-in-law to the Shah of Iran, <laughs> or something, or no, or the move, or the brother-in-law of the person who made it was the Shah of Iran. Anyway, really dicey shit. The movie, um, so it's been on the shelf for years and years, but because now it's the centennial, it looks like it'll finally see the light of day. Good. So I'm very, very happy about that. Um, so with Orson Welles as the director, again, we kind of joke about all these movies that he makes, that. You know, we joke about him in all the cartoons, Pinky and the Brain, you know, uh, and The Critic. Um, and, of course, you know, his last finished role is as a, pl a planet that eats planets, Unicron, <laughs> in the Transformers movies. Yeah, you still haven't seen that, have you? I didn't see the movie, but I have seen his scene, or one of his scenes, yeah. online. You know, what's, what's sad, though... I read that he apparently was in ill health when he recorded it, oh. and they actually used like a a, synth bleh, a synthesizer on his voice, yeah, uh, to make. That's why he sounds that way in the movie because it doesn't quite sound like Orson Welles. It's like his voice kind of went through a processor or something. Yeah. Um, so I, it was. I mean, it was entertaining to hear him. There were a lot of. Stars in the uh, Transformers Leonard, movie. Leonard Nimoy. Uh, Eric Idle. Oh, he was in Robert that? Stack. Judd yeah. Nelson. Yeah. <laughs> it was, what a weird cast. It's not a very good movie, but... I'll tell you the, the the ironic thing about it, too. Like, Orson Welles, he kind of, you know, dismissed the movie when he was asked about it. And he said that, you know, he was asked about his character. And, um, my, and he said, I... I play a toy that fights with other toys. <laughs> but the irony is, I read that they've, of all things, they've never made a Unicron toy. Really? Yeah. Or at least as far as I know. Well, it's a, it's kind of like a giant planet. It doesn't do much. No. Well, yeah, in the movie, he's just like kind of like a giant talking orb. Yeah. Um, who like kind of threatens Megatron. That's the only thing I know about him from seeing the movie. And then... I watched another clip where I guess they destroy Uni uh, Unicron, and they're playing the You've Got the Touch song. Oh, they play that song over and over again in that movie. Oh, God. 
Yeah. It's kind of obnoxious. But the point is, it's kind of sad that Orson Welles' career probably could have turned out better in some ways as a director. You know, he got to make the movies he made, and that's, you know, awesome. Um, you know, he he left a lot of unfinished products. Uh, he was working on a Don Quixote movie for, like, 30 years. And he, he nicknamed the movie, uh, When Are You Gonna Finish Don Quixote? um and he kind of called that like it's like his oh brother where art though yeah i guess so um but uh yeah hopefully you know on the year celebrating his 100th birthday we'll see a new orson Welles movie well that'd be great would yeah i'm really excited about that and i just again i just love hearing him talk and you know he's one of the great stars of the 20th century to me you know just in terms of everything that he did yeah um so i think that uh for now i think we're gonna you know we're just about running out of time here on the podcast yeah it's about time to wrap it up but uh you know hopefully we'll check out some you know new awesome movies coming out soon uh more stuff from the list for yeah. sure um, i haven't chosen mine but i'll have it yet but i'll have it in time for our next recording yes me as well and i'll probably see some more uh, Hollywood schlock, uh, you know. It's 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 that time of year, yeah. and I'll probably go see some stuff and try avoid some other things. And is there uh, anything specific you're looking to watch this time? Um, you know, like as uh, the same weekend that uh, that goddamn uh, Fifty Shades of Grey comes out, yeah. Um, the other movie that's coming out, uh, you know, like Hollywood, I, I sometimes say that what Hollywood does sometimes is akin to when you go to McDonald's and they have in the kids menu, a toy for boys and a toy for girls. Yeah. Uh, that's what they're going to be doing that weekend. Cause on the one hand they have. So what's the toy 50, for boys? The toy for boys is this movie called Kingsman, the secret oh. service. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen a trailer for yeah, that. Yeah, I've seen a ton of trailers I think I might go see that movie. It looks... Even if it's not good, per se, it at least looks entertaining. Right. It looks like it has the type of cast that should be fun to watch. Now, granted, I could say that about Samuel Jackson and he was in The Spirit. It doesn't look like The Spirit, though. It looks like, you know, you have Colin Firth there. Um, you have Samuel Michael Caine's in there. Mark Strong. Michael Caine. Um, Samuel looks, L. Jackson. Yes, so that's going to be kind of the thing that I'll be seeing. Not, you know, to support the movie, but also to kind of, you know, if you're seeing a, if you say that seeing a movie is like putting a vote, you know, you're, you're like as if you're casting your vote for something, I'm voting against Fifty Shades of Grey. I have a feeling about Fifty Shades of Grey. In what way? That, not necessarily about its goodness or badness. But I have a feeling that... It won't last? No. It's a cultural phenomenon? Well, everything fades. But what... Uh, I have a feeling it's not going to live up at all to the sexiness of its book. No. Well... It's, it's going to be remarkably tame, I believe, compared to the source material. Yeah. Because well... every... Because... Even though this shouldn't be an issue with a book like Fifty Shades of Grey, whether you like it or not, I mean, people read it for a reason. Uh, a lot of people have called it mommy porn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which, you know, there's nothing bad about that. You get off on what you get off on. Yeah. But I just have this feeling that if you're it, people who are going to go see Fifty Shades of Grey who want an erotic experience are not going to get it. Yeah. I don't like to be pessimistic, but... I just have this feeling that a lot of people are going to be disappointed. Yeah. Well, I think that the thing is that a lot of people read that book, ironically. They read it because they knew they were reading a bad book. Well, that was the second wave. But, I mean, it became popular for a reason. Yeah. And is it a good book? Well, I can't can't say because I haven't read it. I'm I'm not going to judge it for that. One thing that I've already heard, now again, there haven't been that many reviews that have come out yet, but apparently the the book does cut out a lot of the salacious stuff. It apparently has like 20 minutes of sex scenes. 
Now that's a lot Wait, for the, a mainstream The book movie. cuts the, it the out, movie. or the movie. The movie right. has well, the movie has twenty minutes of sex. Okay. That's a lot for a mainstream movie. Yeah, I mean a lot when you, uh, when considered. you put it that way. I mean, sex scenes usually take less than half a minute, and you don't see anything. Yeah, well, the thing is, this is also like quote unquote BDSM. Right. So. Yeah, so All right, it would be, be kind of it, it would be pointless to make it without the sex. Well, yeah, that's why people are going to see it. They're but going I just to... but you know the way sex scenes are treated a lot in in movies. I mean, the basic philosophy is yeah, the the director barely shows up for a lot of those things. Mm-hmm. I wonder if a lot of people will be going to see this for like, you know, the same reason It'll be, that it... that Deep Throat became famous in the seventies. Granted, that was a like a hardcore porno, but that was like a huge blockbuster. Yeah, I mean, it made people, a ton of money. It almost it was like the novelty of let's go see uh this weird sex movie. Yeah. And now that's now the now porno become, theaters are gone, and you know you can go online, I guess. I but, wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I think we should call it. A that's night. a good note to end on. Yes, and uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening, and uh, hope you come back next time for go, Wages of Cinema. Yes, go see a movie talk about it on the comments if you like yeah or send us an email uh you can reach me at jackgatanella at yahoo.com and uh or you know send leave a comment in the uh soundcloud page where we post our movie sections all right and this is andrew saying that uh the wages of cinema are death are death ah, you're grammatically correct thank you no problem Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know what you'll think about Mr. Kane. I can't imagine. You see, I play the part myself. Well, Kane is a hero and a scoundrel, a no-account and a swell guy, a great lover, a great American citizen, and a dirty dog. It depends on who's talking about him. What's the real truth about Charles Foster Kane? I wish you'd come to this theater when Citizen Kane plays here and decide for yourself.